0: Welcome, each and every one of you. So glad to be with you this morning. Uh, Welcome online. Welcome here in the sanctuary. Happy Halloween to you. All Hallows' Eve, one of the celebrations. Happy Reformation Sunday as we celebrate the great heritage and history of the church. Happy Kirkin to you as we've decorated the sanctuary with many of the families representative, part of all of the different makeup of what it is. In our Scottish heritage, I'm wearing my Cahoon tie. We placed an order for a kilt for me nine months ago, but stupid COVID has backed, you know, who knew there were supply chain issues on tartans, right? Exactly that kind of thing. But, but you know, I, I, I feel like there's a tartan that's missing from the sanctuary liturgically this Sunday. Don't you think, don't you think we ought to be hanging something like this? Today, I mean, I just think that uh, this is a special Sunday for a whole host of reasons. Now, let's be really clear. We all hail from the city of Atlanta in this room. And we know that leading three games to one is not victory yet. You can be up at halftime by a lot. You can have a deciding game where you can claim the prize. So nobody here is counting any chickens before they're hatched, but we pray that today will be a special Sunday in the life of our community. There was a rally almost 10 years ago in Washington, D.C. in 2012, and this rally was known as the Reason Rally. 20,000 atheists descended upon and marched upon Washington, D.C. As they stood on the mall of our great country, they chanted, we're godless, get used to it. We're godless, get used to it. We're godless, get used to it. There were many, many signs throughout the course of what they were showing in their rally. It was a peaceful rally, but it was one that was filled with great haunting statements. Statements like the head of the association that put on the rally, who called all the people who were there marines of skepticism and that part of their task was to flood this country with unpopular but necessary lawsuits. Richard Dawkins, one of the most famous atheists of our generation, stood up and called for people to show ridicule and contempt for all different dimensions of beliefs and practices. And he said, especially upon the Christian Eucharist. As I saw the news coverage of this rally unfolding, couldn't believe what I was seeing with my eyes. There was one placard of one sign that sent a chill down my spine. It said, so many Christians, so few lions. Harkening back to that time where Christians were thrown into the Roman arenas and killed as a part of sport. But the thing that bothered me the most was the fact that they made this concerted effort in all of those different hotel rooms for all of the 20,000 people who were there. They would go into their hotel room. They would take the Bible that the Gideons had placed there. And they would set that Bible disrespectfully upside down on the floor outside their door so that every time they entered and exited their room, they would step over it. And that as people walked through the hallway, they would see the protest of trying to get that book as far away from them as possible. I was with a group of pastors back then who were lamenting, and I was leading the complaint about all of this, but especially upon that act of the Bible on the hotel room. And one of the pastors sighed with me and said, "'I agree with you, it's incredibly sad.' But then he said this. He said, "'It's not near as sad to me as the millions upon millions of Christians who go to hotel rooms every day in this country and who never open them, never read them, don't give a second thought about them, turn themselves to mindless entertainment, or worse, in that hotel room. And all of a sudden, I got one of those moments of perspective that as horrifying and shocking as that rally was to me, One of the most important things is for us as followers of Jesus Christ to make sure that we are staying true to the promise in our moment in time. And so we're in the midst of a series where we are talking about defining moments, and I think one of the defining moments of our lives is when the promises of God get renewed in our moment and in our age there's no significant defining moment without god's promise in terms of eternity being made known to us and so nehemiah we looked at him coming back in that journey of rebuilding the wall and we saw how his defining moment was not just a construction project but the culmination and the result of lots of little defining moments that led up to it and last week we kind of did something that you're not supposed to do in church. We tried to cover seven chapters of the Bible in one 27-minute sermon. This week we're going to have more realistic expectations, partly because I've stayed up too late for too many nights and I'm tired. (laughs) We're going to focus on one chapter of the Bible, and we're going to see how Ezra enters into the story for the first time and how he is going to renew the promise for God's people. And so let's look at God's word, starting at the end of chapter 7. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled into their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And so on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Remember from the history, if you heard or were a part of last week's message, that in 597, God's people were removed from the people of Israel, the country of Israel, and were scattered into the Babylonian empire. And then in 444, so roughly 150 years later, God's people were able to be fully back as Nehemiah helped them to reconstruct the wall and to rebuild the security of what it meant to be a community. It has been generation upon generation upon generation since they have been able to live together as God's family once again. It takes them 12 years to build the wall. And yet there's still something missing. There's still something that's not right. And I don't know if you noticed it, but Ezra, who is the primary teacher of the law, he was not the one that instigated this. Did you notice that it was a groundswell? That it was that the people that were clamoring for Ezra to read the Bible to them. And I don't know if you also noticed, but it repeated it a bunch of times, that it was not only men who were there, but there were also women who were there and all who could understand. In other words, that's a a phrase, a, a reference for children who were old enough to pay attention to what was happening. And then you need to know that this was a highly unusual thing in the ancient world, that if you had a gathering of this sort, that it was usually just men who were invited to the gathering, but this was a gathering that involved women, and it also involved children who were old enough to be able to understand what was going on. And so the people have this groundswell of calling for Ezra to, to read the Bible, and, and then he does so in the midst of this what we refer to as an unexpected togetherness kind of gathering. And that he does so in the location, I don't know if you noticed this detail, of that they're at the Watergate. This has nothing to do with Nixon in the 1970s. This is Watergate on the east side of the city, the place for the source by which the city receives its nourishment. They are returning to the source. And I also don't know if you noticed how long did they read? They started at dawn, and it continued all the way to noon. Now, I want to be really clear about something. You guys get antsy if I start to reach that 30-minute mark. I had a usher in one of my previous congregations in San Antonio, Texas that was amused with himself. He told the same joke every week. I I told him my target was to preach for 27 minutes. And whenever I finished a sermon and I would be out of the doors before the service would end at the benediction and he would shake his head at every week and he would say, pastor, no souls are saved after 15 minutes. I just wanted to push him back to the book of Nehemiah and say, if you're not careful, I'm going to read this for half a day. And yet the most important thing, I don't know if you noticed it, was not just that they were standing, not where they were located, not not just that the people had clamored for it and you had this unexpected togetherness community, but, but also did you notice the posture by which they listened? The text said that for half a day, they listened attentively. I can do everything that I can to try to reveal the delight of the gospel to you and it will not matter if you do not come to this sanctuary with the posture of listening attentively to God's word. I can lead the horse to water. The only way the promise gets renewed in our time and that the Bible becomes a part of our lives as a defining moment is if you come with that posture. But there's more. Let's keep reading. Starting in verse 5. Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Not only did they have the posture of listening attentively, they also have this posture of worship. They have this posture of that as it's read, they, they stand to their feet this is out of respect. We still have vestiges of, of this tradition in key moments. Uh, if, if you've ever been at a gathering where the President of the United States is there, whether you voted for that individual or not, whether you agree with that person's policies or not, there is a tradition out of respect for the office itself that when the President enters the room, all of the people stand. This is the posture by which when they heard God's Word, they all rose to their feet. And as they heard, they lifted their hands in the air. They looked up to the skies. And they also fell to their faces on the ground. All of these different physical manifestations, as well as the audible one of chanting, Amen, Amen, which which means I agree, I agree, or as I like to say, may it be so, may it be so. So everything from what they hear to the way that they hold themselves is all a part of that you don't just listen attentively, you need to respond worshipfully. I want you to be very clear in understanding this. If you read the Bible, if you hear the Bible in such a way that it doesn't inspire you to worship, then you are reading it my heart shattered over a decade ago when i read the results of a survey of clergy in our own denomination only a third of which read the bible for more than anything than their sermon prep no wonder our denomination is floundering My primary commitment is to God in and through His Word, and that if that doesn't lead me to worship, how can I lead you in worship? And that's not just a matter of my occupation or of my vocation. That's what we're all called to do, to listen attentively and to respond worshipfully. And then let's start reading, in verse 7. The Levites, who are the tribe of the priests, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. And they read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Let's keep this up on the screen for a little bit and just notice some things here. What did the Levites do? They instructed, they stood with them, they read They made it clear. They gave meaning and understanding to what was being read. One of the primary tasks of somebody who is leading in the church as a priest is to help to make sure that you're able to understand what you are reading. In other words, we're supposed to explain it clearly. I remember when I was in my first congregation at the First Presbyterian Church of Houston, there was a whole team of teachers who would go and teach in the different Sunday school classes, and there was kind of a a common lament among the Sunday school classes that these teachers would come in, and they would come in, and they would wax eloquent, and they would do information dumps on all of the classes, but the classes couldn't really absorb what was being taught. And so they asked me to do a teaching class for the teachers. And I kept trying to work with them, and I could tell as we were doing our workshops that they weren't getting at it. And so I finally just asked them, what is the primary responsibility of a teacher? And they talked about a variety of different answers, about accountability to this, and knowledge of the information and all this. i said, no, 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 the primary task of a teacher is causing someone to learn. That if I don't cause you to learn so that you clearly understand what it is, what's happening, then I have failed at my task. And before you think, yes, Rich, that's what you ought to do. This is Reformation Sunday, is it not? And that the priesthood, the Levites, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. That you are not just passive recipients of what I teach and then you get to go home. It is that you are to be so absorbed in God's Word that you are able to explain it clearly to others. That's not just my task, it's yours. And so you ought to be reading the Bible in such a way that not only that you're listening and responding, and, but also that you could explain it to other people. Quick story. One time I was preaching in a congregation in Summit, New Jersey. We had a TV ministry there. We housed the public access channel down in the basement, and in exchange for that, they would allow us to broadcast on the public station our worship services live on Sunday morning. And because this was a smaller church, and we were on a shoestring media budget, all of our camera operators were volunteers. And there was this one little junior high boy who was a camera operator. He was at the primary camera when I was preaching, and he had on his headset, and he was behind the camera and I'm preaching and I'm, I'm getting into it and I'm getting kind of excited and I'm expecting to get a response from the congregation and it's Deadsville. But all of a sudden, in the midst of the enthusiasm of that, of that kind of part of the message, the little junior high boy who's behind the camera says, I got it! And I'm like, amen, one person who's working the camera has got it. How about the rest of you? So I'm pretty good about myself that I got at least one amen out of a Presbyterian church. That's a pretty good batting average for Presbyterians. It turns out that a spider had crawled onto the lens of the video camera and that the junior high boy had reached around the camera and was using the corner of the bulletin to try to get the spider off and eventually flicked the spider off and got so excited that when he got the spider off of the lens he yelled i got it and that it had absolutely nothing to do with what i was preaching you got it listen attentively one amen that's what i'm talking about let's close in prayer that's all it took was just one Was that from the sound booth? (laughs) If you're a volunteer, let's triple your pay. (laughs) Renewing the promise involves listening attentively, responding worshipfully, explaining clearly, and finally in verse nine, let's see what's next. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some of those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your what? Your strength. And the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. And then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. And so the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. This is connected to what was happening with the festival of tents. In other words, part of the reason that this happens by the water gate is that they're renewing the promise of the festival of tents was the time that God was with them even when they were in the wilderness, that God will in the fall bring the rains that they need in order for them to survive. And the thing that you might have noticed about this portion of the passage is that as they read God's Word, not only did they worship, they also began to weep, to mourn, to be convicted. Since this is Reformation Sunday, what is a Reformation Sunday without a quote from Martin Luther who said this? If we hear the Word of God and it doesn't upset us, then we have not heard it. You know that this was a genuine hearing of God's word as they heard it together because it cut to their hearts. One of the things that shocks me about how we often read the Bible today is we're kind of like, yep, doing my devotional, got it, let's move on, got to get to the office. You have to allow it to get inside. But it's not meant to cut us to the heart for us to stay in that place of grief. Do not grieve. Do not grieve. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So over and over again, they talk about becoming that people of great joy. How do you become something of great joy? How do you become strong in something? It's very simple. You exercise it. Any dimension of your life. And one of the things that has gotten lost in the midst of the year and a half of this stupid pandemic is the fact that we are still so isolated from one another that we've forgotten how to celebrate. We've forgotten how to have joy. We've forgotten how to be together and to eat with one another, and to drink with one another, and to laugh, and to cry. And friends, that is part of what we need to do. That is part of what is incumbent upon us in renewing the promises of God. In other words, to listen attentively, to respond worshipfully, for us to explain clearly, and also for us to celebrate joyfully. And I think we've forgotten how to do that. True story, this week in the news, there was a guy who was hiking in Colorado on Mount Elger, which is one of the highest points of the 14ers in the Rockies. This is more of an image of what Mount Elger, or Elger, I don't know how it's pronounced, is pronounced as looks at this time of year, not fully covered with snow, but a lot of snow up at the top. He was summiting this peak. It's one of those peaks that you don't necessarily need the technical gear in order to be able to get to the top. He had done his part in the fact that he had registered as a climber and a hiker to be able to go up there, and he got lost. He was lost for 32 hours. And after a while, if you're registered, they'll start to look for you. Now one of the interesting things about this mountain in the Rockies is that it has full cell phone service. And that this individual had a full charge on his cell phone. God's honest truth, you can look this up, it's in all kinds of different news sources. They were not only sending out multiple search parties for him, but they were calling him, they were leaving him voicemails, and they were texting him None of which he responded to. And when he was rescued, they asked him why. And he said, well, I didn't recognize the number. (laughs) And the article said this lake county search and rescue said the man reporting having no idea anyone was out looking for him i mean is this a story in search of a sermon or what if you and i will not be in god's word we will be as clueless as that man in the mountains and we will not recognize the one who is calling us. And we won't recognize that anybody's looking for us. Short way for me to end this message today. Don't be like that hiker. Let's renew the promise in our time by listening attentively, by responding worshipfully. By explaining clearly to a world who desperately needs the gospel explained, and by celebrating joyfully. It's been a long time in exile, and even when we build our buildings, we also need to renew the promise. And so let's pray. Thank you, our Lord and our God, for the opportunity to gather today. What a privilege it is in this country for us to freely gather and to celebrate and rejoice in who you are. Lord, we even, we even celebrate the fact that people could march on Washington with the complete opposite view of us and to do so peacefully, that we have freedom of conscience in this land. Lord, help us to have a high regard for your holy word. Help us to be the kind of people that quietly, not militantly, read your word in hotel rooms and in our homes. And help this morning to be a defining moment where we rededicate our lives to your word, that we renew the promise that you've entrusted us centuries and centuries ago. And so for those who who have hard hearts, will you melt them and enable them to listen attentively? For those of us who, who do not allow your word to move us in our spirits, will we respond with the act of worship to fall to our knees before you? Lord, will you renew and raise up teachers and and help us to see each and every one of us as priests to be able to explain clearly your word, to cause others to learn about your great promises? And Lord, yes, even us Presbyterians help us to learn how to celebrate joyfully That we will not just see this as an act of grief, but the joy of the Lord will become our strength. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.